Because it is Thanksgiving, we like to take a special offering to replenish our benevolence fund every year. At this time in particular, it's a time for us to, well, we're to be thankful people, of course, all the time, right, for what Christ has done for us. But there is a time of year, it is an appropriate time, there's a season and rhythm to life, and so it's an appropriate time to... uh, to remember in a special way. And so we do that every year. Last week we uh, did that. We'll do it again this week. Following the service, as, as you're leaving, there'll be ushers at the door with plates. And, and if uh, the Lord moves in your heart and you uh, would like to give in that way, I know that the deacons uh, will make good use of that as they have uh, through this past year. Helping folks who, for one reason or another, have arrived at a point where they need just a little bit of extra help. And so uh, that is provided out of that benevolence fund. Okay? Well, this morning I feel a little bit like uh, the Apostle Jude. Okay? And the reason I say I feel like Jude is because he sat down to write about one thing and, and then ended up writing about something else. Well, I... Uh, Last week told you that I was going to take some time this morning and deal with three specific threats upon the doctrine of sola fide. And I had every intention to do that. But as I was preparing and reading and rereading various books and periodical articles to get ready for that in order that I could do justice with the various material and became rather obvious to me that there was no way it was going to be an introduction, even an extended introduction, and uh, that it would require a full sermon to treat the material properly and fairly. And I don't want to interrupt the flow of of, uh, Romans chapter 4 by doing that at this moment, so I'm not going to do that. I apologize to those of you who are looking forward to that this morning. Hang on, I'm going to do it, but it's going to be after I finish... Chapter 4. I don't want to interrupt what Paul is doing here in Romans 4 as he is making his presentation of justification by faith alone. You need to hear from him first. His full presentation, his full argumentation. And once we've done that, then the first Sunday in December, we will come back and I will deal with those three significant threats that are not on the horizon, they are absolutely here and among us today that are attacking this critical doctrine. Open your Bibles to Romans 4. If you uh, didn't bring a Bible with you this morning, we have Bibles in the pew rack that you can borrow and use. You'd want to open them up to page 1128 to arrive at Romans chapter 4. We're working our way through this text together. In the process of doing that, actually, uh, the, the whole unit of thought begins back in verse 27 of chapter 3 and then runs all the way through verse 25 of chapter 4. It's one big unit of thought, and so we've been treating it in that fashion. And as we're working our way through it, what, what I've uh, said to you is I want to structure this, arrange this around, around five contrasts that the Apostle Paul makes in this section. He, he specifically points out five things to contrast with justification by faith alone. And he draws out the nature and implications of faith in this chapter as the sole means of our justification so that we can understand how a person is made right before their creator. 
We looked a couple of weeks ago at verses 27 of chapter 3 through verse 31, and we noted that faith is there contrasted with law-keeping, two systems, two means by which one could attempt to be justified before God. Faith versus law-keeping. And then we looked last week at uh, verses 1 through 8 of chapter 4, faith contrasted with works. We're going to pick up two of them this week. So we're going to be looking at verses 9 through 16, faith contrasted with circumcision and faith contrasted with the law. I've given you a handout in your bulletin. If you want to dig that out, you can follow along with the, the outline in that way. Let me uh, go ahead and read the text uh, for you. I'm just going to jump in at chapter 4, beginning in verse 1. What then shall we say that Abraham, our forefather, according to the flesh, has found? For if Abraham was justified by works, he has something to boast about, but not before God. For what does the scripture say? And Abraham believed God and it was reckoned to him as righteousness. Now to the one who works, his wage is not reckoned as a favor, but as what is due. But to the one who does not work, but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is reckoned as righteousness. Just as David also speaks of the blessing upon the man to whom God reckons righteousness apart from works. Blessed are those whose lawless deeds have been forgiven and whose sins have been covered. Blessed is the man whose sin the Lord will not take into account or will not reckon. Is this blessing then upon the circumcised or upon the uncircumcised also? For we say faith was reckoned to Abraham as righteousness. How then was it reckoned while he was circumcised or uncircumcised, not while circumcised, but while uncircumcised. And he received the the sign of circumcision, a seal of the righteousness of the faith, which he had while uncircumcised, that he might be the father of all who believe without being circumcised, that righteousness might be reckoned to them. And the father of circumcision to those who not only are of the circumcision, but who also follow in the steps of the faith of our father Abraham, which he had while uncircumcised. For the promise to Abraham or to his descendants that he would be the heir of the world was not through the law, but through the righteousness of faith. For if those who are of the law are heirs, faith is made void and the promise is nullified. For the law brings about wrath. But where there is no law, neither is there a violation. For this reason, it is by faith that it might be in accordance with grace in order that the promise may be certain to all the descendants, not only to those who are of the law, but also to those who are of the faith of Abraham, who is the father of us all. As I noted for you last week, when Paul begins here, chapter four, we're introduced to Abraham, father Abraham. And we are introduced to a specific event in the life of Abraham that is recorded for us in Genesis chapter 15 and in verse 6, where God has given a promise to Abraham that his descendants will be like the stars of the heavens in number at a time when Abraham himself had no children. And he looked on the stars of heaven, counted them if you will, and then believed God's word to him. And the scripture says it was reckoned to him as righteousness. 
Paul in chapter 4 here of Romans is expositing that text of Scripture. He is drawing out from that text of Scripture the truth that is, that is loaded within that one verse. And so chapter 4 really in, in many ways is an extended treatment of that verse. And in the process of doing that, as I said, in verses 1 through 8, he contrasts it with works. And we looked at that last time and noted that works don't cut it. Works don't cut it. That it is, it is faith reckoned as righteousness, not righteousness as that which has been earned through our hard work and effort. We also noted last time that there are two sides of the justification here. There is the positive and the negative side, if you will. The positive side meaning the righteousness of Christ imputed or attributed to our account, credited to our account. Faith reckoned as righteousness. And there is the other side of it, which is dealt with here in verses 7 and 8. The negative side of it, that is the, the pardoning or the covering over of our sin and transgression because it has been Transferred to Christ, punished on his cross. And we noted last time at the end of the, of the message that the, the link that ties these two aspects together is this word blessing or blessedness. Verses 6, 7, 8 and verse 9. It ties it all together for us. Paul now is going to pick up on that in verse 9 and kind of carry that forward. And, and what he wants to deal with now here is, is, is this blessing of the, of the non-accounting or the non-reckoning of our sins, that which is available only to the Jews, or is it available to the Gentiles as well? The prevailing notion amongst the Jews of that day was that Abraham's righteousness was not only based on his good works, and I gave you some evidence of that last week, but beyond that it was based upon his circumcision. The, the Jewish nation had a series of fortresses that they buttressed their understanding of reality in. And when, when one of those was overturned, they would just retreat to the next fortress and set up another defensive perimeter. And so their original fortress was the whole issue of works. Paul has demolished that fortress, and so now they're going to retreat back to the next one, circumcision. And so Paul is going to overturn that fortress of circumcision, And then, of course, they will retreat to the next one, which is the law, and he will then move on to deal with that one, too. So what's going on here is that they're fighting a delaying action, and the Apostle Paul is just moving forward and chewing up one defense after another until he will leave them no place to go but to fall on their face before Jesus Christ as the only source of righteousness. So here he's contrasting, verses 9 through 12, faith with circumcision. He does first, uh, the, the way he does his first is he establishes a fact. Okay, verses 9 and 10. I've written that down for you, and that is that righteousness is imputed prior to circumcision. Fact. Okay, so he's going he's to go ahead and do that, and then he will move out from that point. So let's establish the fact first, verses 9 and 10. Is this blessing then upon the circumcised or upon the uncircumcised also? That is, is the, is the blessing of having your sin covered over and the righteousness of God attributed to you by faith, is that available to people both circumcised and uncircumcised, that is, Jew and Gentile? For we say faith was reckoned to Abraham as righteousness. How then was it reckoned? Verse 
10, that is, when was it reckoned? When did it happen? While he was circumcised or uncircumcised? When was the declaration made? That's the question. That's going to force us back to Genesis. So go ahead and and turn back to Genesis, page 13, if you're using a, a pew Bible. Paul wants to deal just with an issue of chronology. Abraham's faith was reckoned to him as righteousness. But when in relation to his circumcision? When did it happen in relation to his circumcision? Which event happened first? And what is the significance of the chronology of which came first? Genesis 15, verse 6, right? There is the there is the verse and he believed in the Lord and it was reckoned to him as righteousness. Abraham's faith was reckoned as righteousness, the text said, but the question is, how old was he? How old was he when this event happened? Well, according to Genesis chapter 16 and verse 16, so just kind of flip over to that. We're told that Abram, name later changed to Abraham, that Abram was 86 years old when Hagar bore Ishmael to him. So he was 86 years old when this son was born to him through the slave woman Hagar. Okay? And Genesis 16 follows Genesis 15. So he's 86 at that point. Now you continue to let your eyes move along the text over to chapter 17. Verse 24 and 25 is the giving of the commandment of circumcision. Verse 24, now Abraham was 99 years old when he was circumcised in the flesh of his foreskin. And Ishmael, his son, was 13 years old when he was circumcised in the flesh of his foreskin. So we just need to do a little bit of math. Simple math. Okay. And the simple math tells us that. Genesis chapter 15, which comes before Genesis 16, right, is 13 years plus there is the uh, or 16 to 17 rather is 13 years and 15 to 16 is at least one year for the conception and pregnancy and eventual birth of Ishmael. So if you add it all together from Genesis 15, 6, all the way over to Genesis 17, verses 24 to 25, it's about 14 years, 14 years. So 14 years have passed at least between Abraham's faith being reckoned to him as righteousness and God's command to him that he and his sons be circumcised. All right, turn back to Romans four and let's figure out what Paul wants to do with that. He's established the fact of it, okay? that righteousness, the declaration of righteousness came 14 years before the circumcision. What are the implications of that? What are the implications of that factual reality? Well, I've written it down for you here in a title form. That is, Abraham is the father of all who believe like him. That's the implication. Abraham is the father of all who believe like him. And that's where Paul is going to move in verses 11 and 12. All right, he's answered the question. When was it reckoned? While circumcised or uncircumcised? Answer, verse 10. Not while circumcised, but while uncircumcised. In fact, there's 14 years between them. 
Verse 11, and he received the sign of circumcision to seal the righteousness of the faith which he had. Well, uncircumcised that he might be the father of all who believe. They might be the father of all who believe. Well, since circumcision clearly has no impact on God's reckoning Abraham as righteous, a question that comes up immediately in the Jewish mind, at least, is does that mean that circumcision has no value at all? If it doesn't play into the, the counting of Abraham as righteous, then what is the point of it all? What value does it really have? What is its significance? Well, verse 11, he's called a sign. You see it. He received the sign of circumcision and a seal of the righteousness of the faith, which he had while uncircumcised. Circumcision was given by God as a sign and a seal, a sign and a seal. Now, what does that mean? Well, a sign is not a reality, is it? A sign is not a reality. It points to a reality. Yesterday morning, I was out on the freeway system here of Southern California, and I was driving along, and there's a sign that says the 605 freeway. Now, the sign is not the 605 freeway, is it? The sign points to the reality of the 605 freeway. That's the purpose of a sign. It points towards a reality that exists. It is not the reality itself. So what is the purpose of circumcision? One of them is that it is a sign. It, it, it points to a previously existing faith in the promise of God. It's a sign. This, the command to circumcise his sons after him was so that they might be then identified with him as a chosen people set apart for God's glory. Circumcision is a sign. Well, beyond that, Paul says it's a seal, verse 11, a seal of the righteousness of the faith, which he had while uncircumcised. Now, a seal is different than a sign. A seal is something that confirms the truth or reality of something else. A sign points towards a reality. A seal confirms a reality, confirms a reality. For example, in the ancient days, a document would be rolled up after it was written or it might be folded in half and they would they would melt some candle wax on the seam. Right. And then the king would take his signet ring and he would stick it in the hot wax and it would create a seal on the document. That seal confirmed that the contents of that document were real, were truthful, were words of the king. It confirmed reality. We have the same thing today. We have a notary's seal. Isn't that true? You have to get a notary's seal. Now, a notary's seal does not create the document. You can't take a piece of paper and just take the notary stamp, you know, and squeeze it and make that nice impression on it. And then somehow you've got a legal document that does not create a legal document. Nor is a seal ever affixed to a document before it's created. When you sign uh, loan papers to uh, purchase a home, they don't come in with, doc, you know, with pieces of paper already got notary stamps in the corners. And you sit down with a pen and write in all the terms. Isn't that true? The last thing that is done after the legal document has been prepared and it's in its in its realities is then the notary seals it. OK, affirms the truthfulness of it, the reality of it. So a seal doesn't create reality. It merely affirms reality. It certifies reality. Abraham had been declared righteous by God while still uncircumcised. His later circumcision adds nothing to that. 
Okay, it adds nothing to it. It merely signifies it and confirms it. Signifies it and confirms it. And that, by the way, has tremendous correspondence to what you just witnessed behind me a half an hour ago. Baptism. Baptism. Baptism does not secure righteousness for a person. It is a bath in which the dirt is washed off your skin unless there is an existing righteousness prior to that event. The baptism signifies or is supposed to signify the reality of the faith in Christ that already exists before you enter the water. It's a sign of your commitment to Jesus Christ. It is a signification of your righteousness already been imputed to you by faith alone. Baptism is important. It is given by God. It is not to be neglected. In the Old Testament, circumcision had been given to the nation by God. It did not make them righteous. But it was not to be neglected. It was not optional. It was a command of God to be done. There is great correspondence to baptism. It is a sign. It is a, it is a, uh, a seal of what Christ has already done in your heart. And if Christ has done that in your heart, then you should take the seal to yourself. You should go through those waters of baptism. Now, in verses, second half of verse 11 and verse 12, we've got a long purpose clause going on. Beginning here where it says that he might be the father of all who believed without being circumcised. In verses, second half of verse 11 and verse 12, Paul is proving up his point that Abraham is the spiritual father of all believers, both Jew and Gentile. And the reality of this fact is demonstrated again by the, by the, by the fact that he was made righteous or declared righteous rather when he was still uncircumcised and that he's the father of those who are circumcised. That is, he was circumcised. Okay, so he's the father of all people. He's the father of the uncircumcised because his righteousness was declared to him by faith while still uncircumcised. He is the father of the circumcised, that is, the Jewish nation, because he took to himself the sign and seal of circumcision. So he becomes the father of all believers, all people, Jew and Gentile. He is the father of Gentiles, those who are not circumcised. He is the father of, of true Jews, that is, those who are circumcised. And notice what Paul say. They have to be circumcised, verse 12. The father of those who are not only are of the circumcision, but also follow in the steps of the faith of our father Abraham, which he had while uncircumcised. That is, that he is their father too. those that bear the mark in the flesh, provided they follow the leader. They walk in his steps. They have the faith that he had even before he took the, the sign of circumcision to himself. Jesus brings this same argument to bear when he is in dispute with the religious authorities. John chapter 8, verse 39. They're, they're, um, he's in a dispute with them and they, they answered and said to him, Abraham is our father. And Jesus said to them, if you are Abraham's children, do the deeds of Abraham. In context there, the, de the deeds of Abraham are to believe, to believe. 
It is a continual source of amazement to me to ponder this reality. Think with me on this. God choreographed the events and circumstances of Abraham's life in such a way that the essential truth of sola fide would be fleshed out in this one man. God could have circumcised him before Genesis 15. Isn't that true? But God waited all the way, at least 14 years later, to have Abraham take the mark of circumcision to himself. Why? Because God wanted to make absolutely certain that all people down through the ages, when they look upon Abraham, could understand the fact that faith came before circumcision. And therefore, circumcision was not a gateway or a means by which justification comes. So Abraham's life becomes a display of the doctrine of sola fide. It is woven right there, as I said, in the very earliest chapters of Genesis, so that all who have eyes to see look upon that and know forevermore we are made right with our Creator only through faith. Abraham is the father of believing Gentiles. That's the majority of us. Abraham is also the father of believing Jews. He's the father of all believers. I think I'm on pretty safe ground here to say that Abraham is the most significant man who ever lived. His relationship with God and the covenant that springs from that relationship, beloved, is the backbone of all that God has done and is doing. It is tied up in this one man. If we do not understand what God was doing in the life of Abraham, the Abrahamic covenant, we will at best have a truncated understanding of the Bible. This man is huge. And his life is a living embodiment of essential truth. Get to know Abraham. If you don't know him well, get to know him. Go back. Read on his life. Reflect on his life. And then move to the New Testament and see what they have drawn from his life to understand what God is doing. It's all about Abraham. It's all about Abraham. The first 11 chapters of Genesis, Moses is absolutely on a freight train. He can't get through those events fast enough to arrive at chapter 12 of Genesis. And then the brakes screech. You come to a full stop, bang your head on the seat in front of you to wake you up. And you begin to see this man, Abraham. He's huge. Absolutely huge. Faith contrasted with circumcision. Circumcision does not save you. That's a, how's that for a really clear way to say it? Okay, Circumcision does not save you. Baptism does not save you. It is a sign. It is a seal of a reality that exists by faith. And if it's not, if you have gone through the waters of baptism without possessing righteousness imputed to you, granted to you by faith, all you did was take a warm bath. Nothing but a warm bath. Faith contrasted with circumcision. Next, 
Faith contrasted with the law. All right, Paul, you trashed our circumcision. We'll just go to the next fort. The law. We'll just hide behind the law. That's what we'll do. Well, not for long you won't. Okay? Faith contrasted with the law. Fact. Verses 13 and 14. The law voids faith. The law voids faith. Okay, Paul, walk us through this. For the promise to Abraham or to his descendants, verse 13, that he would be the heir of the world was not through the law, but through the righteousness of faith. For if those who are of the law are heirs, faith is made void and the promise is nullified. Notice that verse 13 begins with a four. The Greek is gar and it just it's just a, um, a grammatical marker to point you to this text and to let you know that that which is following this has an explanatory function. OK, so there's an explanation going to happen here. Of why faith is what is reckoned as righteousness, not law keeping. So Paul's going to deal here with the law. In Galatians chapter three, he deals with the same issue. The same issue in Galatians 3, and he, he responds to it there a little bit differently than he's going to do here. In Galatians 3, when the issue there is law and faith, Paul responds by saying, look at the chronology. He says, which came first? Abraham reckoned righteous by faith, Genesis 15:6, or the law coming to Moses, right? And Paul makes a rather simple, but it should be obvious uh, a note in all of this, and he says the law didn't come till 430 years later. It's not possible that the law could have had any impact on Abraham's righteousness. So in Galatians 3, he uses an argument of chronology. And he argues there then that the law can't nullify a promise that had already been received by faith. Here, he's going to take a little different tack to the same issue. And instead, here, he's going to focus on a contrast between law and promise. He's going to focus on the contrast between the law and the promise. Okay, the law and the promise. Notice verse 13, for the promise to Abraham. What is the promise? There is no one single Old Testament verse that you can go to that says this is the promise. Okay, so you can't find it in a single verse of the Old Testament. But what it is referring to is the accumulation of the Old Testament promise originally given to Abraham and then expanded as Revelation progressed. It was given to Abraham in Genesis 12, right? Genesis 12, the original promise is given there where God says to him in, in, um, in Genesis 12, beginning in verse 1, he says, Now the Lord said to Abram, Go forth from your country from your relatives and from your father's house to the land which I will show you, and I will make you a great nation. And I will bless you and make your name great, and so you shall be a blessing. And I will bless those who bless you, and the one who curses you I will curse, and in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. That's the original Abrahamic covenant. Now, that covenant is repeated and expanded as the text continues. So Genesis 15, we have a repeat and an expansion of it. Genesis 17, Genesis 22. This is the initial promise to Abraham. He's referring here in Romans 4, the promise, he's referring to the Abrahamic covenant. And within the Abrahamic covenant, latent within it, 
was this idea of worldwide reign. Notice again, verse 13, Romans 4. For the promise to Abraham or to his descendants that he would be the heir of the world. Paul says the promise given to Abraham is that he would be the heir of the world. That is, that they would rule the world. The world would be their inheritance. Now, it's there in Genesis 12, but it's in, it's, it's in undeveloped form. It's in, in seed form. But as the Old Testament revelation progresses, the seed begins to sprout and grow into this magnificent plant. And so you begin to understand the implications of all of that. For example, we learn that Messiah is going to come through Abraham and that Messiah's kingdom is a worldwide kingdom. Psalm chapter 2, verse 8. Ask of me and I will surely give the nations as your inheritance and the very ends of the earth as your possession. This is a messianic psalm. Isaiah chapter 9. The great Christmas text that we we love to uh, to quote Isaiah nine, it says, for unto us, a child will be born, a son will be given and the government will rest on his shoulders and his name will be called wonderful counselor, mighty God, eternal father, prince of peace. And there will be no end to the increase of his government or of or of peace and on the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and uphold it with justice and righteousness from then on and forevermore. Messiah is going to have a worldwide reign. The earth is his inheritance. Messiah comes from the loins of who? Abraham. He is the greater son of Abraham. So late and within the promise to Abraham in, in Genesis 12 is worldwide messianic reign. But it goes beyond that. It goes beyond that because Paul says back in Romans 4, that the promises to Abraham and to his descendants. Who are the descendants of Abraham? All those who have faith like Abraham. Remember, we just finished establishing that point. It's uncircumcised Gentiles. It's circumcised and believing Jews. They are the heirs of Abraham. So they also will receive the earth as an inheritance. That's you. That's you. Okay? The earth, by virtue of your union with Messiah, is your inheritance too. For example, Isaiah. Isaiah chapter 49, verse 22. Thus says the Lord God, Behold, I lift up my hand to the nations, and I set my standard to the peoples. They will bring your sons in their bosom and your daughters will be carried on their shoulders and their kings will be your guardians and their princesses, your nurses. They will bow down to you with their faces to the earth. They will lick the dust of your feet and you will know that I am the Lord. Those who hopefully wait for me will not be put to shame. He's writing to the nation of Israel and he's saying to the nation of Israel that now it looks like you're on the bottom of the pile. And at Babylon, the Gentile nations are oppressing you and driving you down. But the day is coming when you, Israel, will rule the earth. And the Gentiles will come to you and you will rule over them. You can check 
trip further, Isaiah, we're not going to go there, but Isaiah 60, verse 14 through 17. Isaiah 61, verses 6 through 7, speaking to Messiah's people, Israel. How about this one? This one's probably a little more familiar to you. How about Matthew chapter 5? Matthew 5 and verse 5. Blessed are the gentle, for they shall what? Inherit the earth. Blessed are the gentle, for they will inherit the earth. Second Timothy 2.12. Paul says, verse 11, it's a trustworthy statement. If we died with him, we shall also live with him. If we endure, we shall also what? Reign with him. We shall reign with him. Revelation chapter 5. These are just a few, by the way. The scripture is absolutely loaded with this. Revelation 5, verse 10. The church is now in the presence of Christ in heaven. John has this vision of it all. And it says that you have made them to be a kingdom and priest to our God, and they will reign upon where? The earth. The earth. Abraham received a promise from God. Within that promise is that the children of Abraham will rule and reign the earth. The earth is their inheritance. And they receive that inheritance through the greater son of Abraham, Messiah. By virtue of their faith union with him. Back to Romans 4. For the promise to Abraham or to his descendants that he would be heir of the world was not through the law, but through the righteousness of faith. How and when did Abraham receive the promise of this rule? It came when he believed and it was reckoned to him as righteousness. So if the inheritance is not based upon adherence to the law, then it has to be based upon faith. And it can't be based upon the law. Paul is going to continue to tell us here, right? Verse 14, for if those are of the law are of the, are heirs, then faith is made void and the, and the uh, promise is nullified. He's saying it can't be based upon the law because if it is, there will be no heirs. There will be no heirs. Because no fallen human being can fully keep that law. Jesus said in Matthew 5, verse 48, you shall be perfect as your heavenly father is perfect. All perfect people come sign up. The earth is yours. Nobody's perfect, right? You can get people to admit that all the time. Well, nobody's perfect. Well, if nobody's perfect, then the law cannot be the means by which you will receive this inheritance. In fact, the law doesn't produce the inheritance. In fact, what the law produces, look at verse 15. It produces wrath. The exact opposite of the inheritance. If the inheritance, the only way to receive it is by law, then, then faith is made void. That is, that it is nullified. 
promise is unachievable. It's out of reach. It cannot be had. It's got to be by faith. Because all the law brings is wrath. Fact. The law brings about wrath. Verse 15. The law brings about wrath. Implication. Faith gives assurance of blessing. The law brings wrath. Faith gives assurance of blessing. Verse 15, for the law brings about wrath. But where there is no law, neither is there violation. Interesting statement, Paul. The law produces wrath because it turns sin. Okay. Harmatia, missing the mark, into the more serious offense of violation. Parabasis, literally overstepping. The law turns sin into violation or transgression. Maybe your text translates it that way. It turns sin into transgression. And that's why it brings about wrath. When God's requirements are clearly communicated, properly defined through a set of laws and commands, and then someone still violates them, they are now guilty of a far more serious offense than simply falling short of the requirement. They are now guilty of the offense of rebellion. And that's why the law brings wrath. Let me illustrate it for you this way. It's like the difference between failing an exam in school because you didn't know there was going to be one. You show up at school in the morning and the teacher hands out an exam and you didn't know there was going to be one and so you fail it. Versus, you know there's going to be an exam. You have been given the study guide to study for the exam. You refuse to study for it and when you get to the exam, even the right answers that you know, you intentionally write down incorrectly. Okay? That would be violation. Nothing draws the wrath of God like rebellion, like transgression, like violation. So the reason the Mosaic law brings about wrath, verse 15, rather than the promise of the inheritance, is because it turns sin into violation and brings on the wrath of God. Since God gave the Jews the law and they've transgressed the law, the law has brought wrath on them. They're not going to get Abraham's promise through the law. It can only come through faith. Maybe I can just summarize this whole thing for you. We try to summarize it. Abraham and his descendants will inherit the world through their attachment to Messiah, who will come from Abraham's loins. The only way to receive the inheritance is to be righteous like Abraham. And that cannot happen through the law because the law just brings wrath because of our failure to keep it. So it must come to each person in the same way it came to Abraham. It came by faith. You see that? You are an heir of the world. You will receive the world as your inheritance only by imitating the faith of Abraham to whom the promise was given. Paul finishes up here in verse 16. He says, for this reason, it is by faith that it might be in accordance with grace. 
Some see this statement for this reason as pointing back to verse 15 and saying it's for this reason that the promise can only come by faith because law only brings wrath. But I, I think that it's pointing forward, actually, not backwards here. I think Paul's not summarizing the argument. I think he's advancing the argument just one step further. The reason the promise can only come by faith, can only be secured by faith, is that the promise is according to grace. Right? Verse 16, it is for this reason by faith that it might be in accordance with grace in order that the promise may be certain to all the descendants. Not only to those who are of the law, but also to those who are the faith of Abraham, the father of us all. That is that the promise operates by grace. It's received through faith, not law. It's a grace promise. Therefore, it's dependent upon God to give it, not man to earn it. And it's available to all. The promise is available to all because it's a grace promise received by faith. The faith of Abraham. Maybe I can illustrate this for you. This certainty. Notice here he says that the promise may be certain. Verse 16. Do you see that? So that the promise may be certain to all the descendants. Not only those who are of the law, that is not only to Jews, but also to those who are of the faith of Abraham, the father of us all. There is a certainty to this promise received by faith to Abraham and to all who will imitate his faith. And it goes like this. I made a bargain with my children a few years ago. Here is my bargain. My kids wanted a puppy. Okay? They wanted a puppy. And we already had a dog. But they wanted a puppy. So I made a bargain with them. I made a law-based bargain. My law-based bargain to them was that I will buy you a puppy if you will clean up the dog droppings every day without fail for six months. And at the end of six months, if you have faithfully obeyed the law, kept the yard clean, okay, no misdays, okay, for six months, I will buy you a puppy. That is a law-based promise. I could have said, in six months, I will buy you a puppy. That would be a faith-based promise. That would depend upon grace, not law-keeping. See the difference? Well, I didn't give them the option. They got law. Which would you rather trust in to receive your puppy? Your ability to keep the law without violation for six months? Or dad's promise that at the end of six months, I will buy it for you. Believe the promise. Which is more secure? They missed it five and a half months. (laughs) 
Law's law. <laughs> Still only have one dog. All you kids are saying, man, am I glad I didn't grow up in your house. Right? Amen. That's right. Well, that's what it comes down to. Really. Boil it all down. Which is more secure? A promise of God in grace received by faith. Dependent upon the character of God. Or an inheritance determined by your ability to keep the law. You shall be perfect because your Heavenly Father is perfect. Paul has clearly shown us in this section. He's clearly shown us the truthfulness of sola fide. Justification by faith alone. That it is the means by which we are made right with God. It doesn't come by circumcision or any other religious ritual. You know, it never fails to amaze me. Never fails to amaze me. The number of people who will admit that they have never kept God's law. That's not hard to get people to admit that. That they have not kept God's law. But it never ceases to amaze me the very people who will willingly admit they have never kept God's law, not perfectly as God requires, are the very ones who insist that someday they're going to be admitted into God's presence based on their law keeping. Or they're going to be admitted into God's presence based on their ritual of baptism. What is the basis of your hope for eternity today? What are you trusting in? What is the means by which you will secure the promise of God? Is it your ability to keep His law? Is it your baptism? Or is it the grace of God who provided His own Son as a substitute for all who would receive Him by faith? Beloved, you're going to stand someday before God. Everybody. The Bible says it's appointed unto men to die once and then the judgment. You're going to stand before God someday. And you have two options. You can say, here I stand in my righteousness. Give me what I deserve. Or you can say, here I stand in my broken, fallen, sinful humanity, wrapped 
in the righteousness of Jesus Christ. How do you want to appear before Him? Receive that robe by faith. The same way Abraham did 4,000 years ago. Let's pray. Our Father, there is only one way. It is a faith system. Established by You in Your mercy and grace. Whereby You reach out to fallen humanity and provide for them the secure promise of life everlasting through Your Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. If they will but receive Him with the hand of their heart called faith. Father, please work this morning, even right now, in our hearts. Lord, those out there this morning who have not received that gift, Father, may today be their day. Please, Lord, draw them to Yourself. For those who have received it, Father, please strengthen their commitment to this reality. As all about them, they are assaulted in an attempt to overturn this truth. Attempt to shake their confidence in it. Thank You that Your Word is so clear. Thank You that You've given it to us. Let us now receive it by faith in Jesus' name. Amen. There's things been said this morning that have stimulated within your heart and mind some thoughts that you want to get resolved. We want to talk to you about that. If you don't know whether you've received Christ or not, if you're not sure, you're not just confident of the reality that your eternity is secure in Jesus Christ, or you think there might be anything else, any other thing that you could be trusting in, we want to talk to you about that because this is the issue, beloved, between heaven and hell. As we sing, there will be some folks over here by this lighted cross. The appropriate place to come, right? Come to the cross. They would like to talk with you. They like to open the Word of God with you and show you. They want to pray with you. Maybe you just have something pressing on your soul that you would like to talk to somebody about or you need prayer for. If you come, they'll pray for you. Pray with you. We have a prayer room through that door. You can go in there even if you want to be alone and pray yourself. It's a place where you can go. When we hear the Word of God, we need to respond to it. We need to respond to it. God bless you.